0: This is A Word Fitly Spoken, by words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and once again, Adam Kuntz. Starting a new topic today, we're going to talk about CFW Walters Pastoral Theology. How's it going, guys? It's going very well.
1: I'm doing well, too. I mean, just got done with a service this evening, and I was preaching on the book of Acts, and that always is a, a good time. So
0: Was that uh, was that an assigned text, or are you just digging uh, through the book?
1: <laughs> just kind of digging through. I mean, we have Ascension coming up, but everything's good. I mean, it's a great book to preach through anyway.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
1: But I'm looking forward to talking about Walther's uh, Pastoral Theology as well, because it has relevance for us as Missouri Synod pastors,
0: certainly. Absolutely. So um, some preliminaries. We're using uh, the current or the newest uh, CPH edition of Walter's Pastoral Theology, part of the Walter's Works series. It's this burgundy book. You can't miss it. It kind of matches several of the other Walter's Works that are being put out by Concordia Publishing House. So who is Walter? What is his pastoral theology? Why are we talking about this guy?
2: Yeah, Walther is, as we've said in previous episodes, basically the George Washington of the Missouri Synod. So there are many founding fathers within Missouri Synod history, which you're going to locate in about the second, third of the 19th century. But Walther is the most important one, not only as a figurehead, but also as one who holds the Synod together, who is instrumental in its founding and presides over it from St. Louis, until his death. So there really isn't a more important figure in early Missouri Synod history. Unfortunately, we lack a complete biography of Walther, a critical biography of him from that day to this. And so the best that we can say about his life, just to outline it, is that he is born in Saxony in what is now Eastern Germany. He is a pastor's son And he himself becomes a pastor, but between his birth and his ordination, he follows a circuitous route, spiritually speaking. And that route lies through a great deal of struggle, internal spiritual struggle and sickness. And there's a time when he's in college and he has to take time off in order to recover. And as he's convalescing, he is reading Luther constantly. And not only is he reading Luther... But very faithfully for himself, he writes a letter to a pastor, Martin Stefan, who answers him in such a comforting way that along with many other pastors and lots of other inquiring souls, Walther attaches himself ideologically to Stefan, which will lead to his emigration in the late 1830s to America when Stefan demands that those who follow him, whether pastors or laity, should, for the sake of their souls and for the future, Of the Orthodox Lutheran Church should flee with Stefan to North America. Two big things there. One is the issue of Stefan, who is later a great disappointment, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But the other is that Walther's life is marked by massive reading of Luther. And that's very important for not only what he thinks, but how he thinks.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. His methodology, and then how this returning to Luther time and time again affects his practical application of theology. And really it affects us as a church body in America. And Walter comes over at an interesting time in the United States. The religious landscape is changing very much. And the Saxon immigrants enter into America, into an America where the continental European model of Lutheranism isn't going to fit. Or isn't going to be easily adaptable for a number of reasons that we'll talk about. At least not for the Stephanites and, and then Walt and then the people left after after the controversy. So we're going to be devoting several episodes to him and particularly to this work. Now, this work is him lecturing on this topic, pastoral theology and others, to young pastors or young men who are entering the pastorate, students at Concordia Theological at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. So it's an eminently practical work, but from our perspective, why else are we devoting so many episodes to him?
2: We're doing it partly because the things that we've already done on George Henry Gerberding, on evangelism, on in the most recent episode on exegesis of Paul's advice and exemplary nature for pastors, is kind of a very different emphasis from Walther. And so we're kind of stretching ourselves in this. We're also looking at somebody who is massively historically important, not only for ourselves, but really for the history of Lutheranism in the United States, because what the Stephanites bring with them and what Walther is so incredibly important in founding in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is sort of a, A very distinctive way of being Lutheran in America, uh, which is very different from Gerberding, whom we discussed earlier on, and different really from pretty much any other church body. And that distinctive way of being Missourian is what it is, such that I, I met a guy two weeks ago, or rather, I had known him for a while. He's a professor at the university that I'm studying at, and he is now an ELCA Lutheran, so that's the more liberal Lutheran church body. But his father was a professor at the Missouri Synod College outside Chicago, then called River Forest, now called Concordia Chicago. And this guy says, and he does this, I guess, with 100% accuracy, he says he's never been wrong, that having grown up as a Missourian, when a Missourian fills a pulpit in an ELCA church, you know, somebody who comes from the Missouri Synod but is now an ELCA clergyman, When someone like that fills a pulpit, he can tell right away that that's a Missourian from how he does things and from how he says things. And this guy is relating this story to me when he finds out that I'm a Missouri Senate clergyman, and he's shocked because he can't tell that I am a Missouri Senate clergyman from how I talk, because otherwise he's been 100% accurate in his lifetime about spotting fellow Missourians like himself. (laughs) So Walther is really, I think largely honestly the source of that walther is the source of that missourian distinctiveness so I, I i don't think you can really pick anybody more important
0: yeah it's, it's an interesting uh, interesting perspective uh, upon his influence and in nearly every facet of missouri senate life and practice and then of course as you mentioned you don't you don't fit in you know there's that whole genetic thing that whole uh, saxon roots that that german roots that that the missouri senate is proud of but how much really it is we are specifically influenced by individuals more than just a general cultural influence. I mean, yeah, the cultural stuff is there, but this one man really does have his fingerprints all over much of what we do and what we say.
2: Yeah, that's right, because the Missouri Synod as a 19th century German immigrant church body is an amalgamation of Germans from really many different German-speaking areas, including places far outside any kind of German political setup, Russian Germans, for instance. So the Missouri Synod is is an amalgamation of a variety of German cultures, and Walther is the formative personal influence in that. He's really where sort of we come from, whether you're thinking specifically about the crisis surrounding Martin Steffen's deposition in Perry County, Missouri in, in the early 1840s, and then Walther's formulating how the Missouri Synod would come to do things, how the Perry County Lutherans and then the Missouri Synod would come to do things. Walther is formative even after that as a seminary president, as a professor, as the leader of the four congregation unit. The, I don't know how to say it in English, the Gesamtgemeinde is, is what it is in German, four congregations. Only the, only the King's English, please. Yeah, this I, is a... I don't, I, right? I mean, it's really <laughs> interesting that we did Gerberting and Gerberting is. You know the ardent American. And when we come to Walther, we don't even have English words for some of the things they're doing. And he doesn't really talk about America specifically, except to say negative things about its religious landscape. So all of that, I think, is very interesting, just comparing pastoral theologies to one another.
0: Yeah, it is. Very interesting indeed. Any other observations before we jump right into the book here?
2: No, I think that to get into it is, it's significant that On Walther's first page, he's got Greek, he's got Latin, and he's got references to books that have been out of print for about 200 years when he's writing. It's a really distinctive religious culture nurtured by extremely old books that the Missouri Synod itself never got back into print, but but which Walther's
0: going to be using assiduously. He enjoys quotations so much, they practically are reprinted.
1: Maybe just a brief observation about that. I remember reading about Walther and how he was, of course, he taught at the seminary for a while, but his original intention was for the seminarians to learn and to speak Latin as the way of doing all of their classes. And, it's, and it was said that he was trying to basically shape them in such a way that they'd be able to read all of these old books in the original languages, which, of course, is laudable, but unfortunately, because it was such a great endeavor, it very quickly went away after he dies.
2: Yeah, I in memoirs that I've read about the time, that early time at Concordia Seminary, it's almost uniformly reported by people who were students then that they spent so much time preparing simply coherent answers in Latin to specific questions within Walther's. instruction. It's almost
0: like memorizing like lines. Yeah, you're just trying to get... Them. They, those German farm boys weren't speaking Latin. But to be clear with this,
1: though, Walther's intention, at least as far as I understand it, is that he, by using all of these old books, all of these things that are so long out of print, he's trying to lead the Missourians back into what he believes to be a pure Lutheranism, because he's dealing in a situation where a lot of the Lutherans in his day were not willing, at least in his eyes, to be Lutheran. They were going in directions that he didn't feel was right. So he sees in this motion towards going back towards these old sources, towards the the, the Latin, a, a way of preserving what he believes to be a pure Lutheranism.
0: Part of that, you know, for him, the training is rather rigorous because he sees the pastoral task as something requiring rigor. You can tell I brought my thesaurus today. Uh, but <laughs> he, um, <laughs> so these things are are difficult. We can make jokes and do whatever we want about the, the Latin memorization and stuff, which would be a tremendously difficult thing to do, even more so in our day. And yet his aims are pure, and what he's trying to do is noble. Um, but again, for the for the students, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult. I
2: think the significance of a man creating rather single-handedly via different things like the newspaper, the Lutheran, via institutions like the seminary, And the congregations he pastored, whose constitutions are the model for constitutions of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregations still today, in many ways, is his power to create a very distinctive culture shaped around his convictions, like what Zellwin was saying, that we know the way of being good Lutherans and that way is found in the past so that the task primarily will be to restate and to reclaim the things of the past. And that is really foundational to his theological method and also to his pastoral advice that he's going to give.
0: Well, and in this one way, in this one way, Walter resembles his other 19th century counterparts in the United States of America, namely his use of publishing. And through the printed word, he is able to get Missouri's message out there. And really through his writings, uh, through Der Lutheraner and uh, other similar things, he is able to unite other synods as well. And he engages in these debates and in strong debates and in sincere debates. And he uses the publishing arm very wisely. And it's really impressive. That was something, though, that was very common in the 19th century in the United States. Every new group that sprang up had a publishing arm. And there was a lot of competition, even among the Lutherans, competing newspapers, competing magazines. And Walter wisely uh, uses the resources available to him. And this kind of goes back a little bit to our uh, evangelism episode, I suppose. He uses the best means available to him and uses them quite successfully. So in, in one way, he is a man not of his time. And really though, as far as his functioning, um, he is a man of his time. And I mean that in a in as complimentary a way as, as can be.
2: I want to get into his discussion about what theology is, because I think when we look at that definition, we're going to see very much how he's not a man of his time. I mean, he's not even a man that is immediately comprehensible to us when we think about that topic.
0: As far as the ethos he represents, yes. But as far as how he operates in his time, that's, that's, that's my point. Yeah, no question. Is that, is that he's able to extend far because he does make good use of, the, of what's available to him. So beginning now, we're going to be looking at, for the most part, the first and second chapters of the book, and we'll see how far we get in this particular episode. So now we're going to look at Walter's definitions, and we're going to start from the beginning. We're talking about a pastoral theology. So for Walter, what is theology? It
2: is a habitus, a Latin word that he uses over and over. We might say in English that that theology is a personal attitude of the soul that makes a man competent to be a pastor or a theologian. That seems kind of strange because when we think about theology, we think of it as the study of God, a subject. And he says that that is true, but theology is only secondarily or abstractly the knowledge of certain doctrines or the discussion of certain revealed teachings of God or about God. It's, it, it is, first of all, and primarily the capacity that a person given the Holy Spirit and set into the pastoral office has to exercise that office. Walter's overarching point here, and he's restating this simply from Lutherans of the Orthodox period of the 16th century and the 17th century and the early 18th century is that the ministry of the church is primarily the fitness to be an overseer. It is not an academic exercise or academic knowledge.
0: An attitude of the soul, you know, as, we, as you said um, there in the beginning. So what does that mean then? Uh, what is that going to look like then? How, how is that exercised in one of Walter's students, for example? What would he expect to see? So what makes a theologian, I guess, is the question.
1: If we're going to be serious about Walter's definition, that it's not just a strictly academic exercise, the first thing that would be necessary, of course, would be a living faith, right? So you have someone who believes in God and who is engaged in the activities of, of piety and, and notably of prayer. So if a theologian is going to do pastoral theology, if you want to speak of it that way, he has to be engaged in fervent and ardent prayer.
2: Yeah, and he's praying specifically for the gift of the Holy Spirit as a leader, as a guide, as someone who will show him what it is that he needs to learn and, and what it is that he is to carry out. And when Walther discusses this, he really does just quote Luther at great length, so that Luther's form, um, formulation that prayer, meditation, and affliction make a theologian walther's really just quoting at this point from luther and luther's saying that you have to pray for the holy spirit and then you meditate on the spirit's words in scripture so meditation is not located as kind of navel gazing or a kind of eastern introspection it's meditation on the spirit's words in scripture over and over again walther emphasizes in other places as luther does in this specific treatise that walther's quoting that meditation on scripture means reading and rereading and rereading scripture. It doesn't mean that, you know, you read Romans once and now you know what Romans is about, right? Scripture is not to be handled the same way you handle like a detective novel. You go back again and again and again. And so in doing that, you're always praying for enlightenment. And then you're also always bearing the yoke of Christ as you go into the world so that affliction, and Luther specifically talks about his affliction from the papacy, but you can think about any of the difficulties incumbent upon the pastoral office. That affliction actually is what makes you someone who understands the worth, the power, the beauty, the strength of God's word.
0: Before we move on, let's actually talk about affliction for a second. Walter's going to have his own particular one. In many ways, our, uh, our struggles are different from Luther's. You know, the three of us don't face direct persecution from El Papa today.
2: Basically, no one faces persecution from the Pope except Orthodox Roman Catholics.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, the, the trad cats. Yeah, that's true. When we talk about affliction outside of the abstract, what might that look like for a pastor today?
2: Affliction could include his own weaknesses, It could include the awareness of his weaknesses, of his own insufficiencies, of the mistakes he's made, his confusion, his incapacity at various times. It could include a lot of his own foibles. It could also include attacks upon him, gossip, misunderstanding. It could include the lethargy that Satan wants to induce in his hearers not to be fruitful in, in hearing the word and not to be doers of the word. It, it could include any any multitude of besetting sins or sudden attacks upon him and upon his ministry.
0: Right. For Walter and for Luther, then, these afflictions will come and they are a, necess- they are a necessary part of the pastoral life and part of pastoral formation, too.
2: Yeah, biblically speaking, we can talk about the the refiner's fire. I mean, it has to come. It must come to you. If you are not refined, you cannot be purified. So the cross is actually something that you will receive. It's not something to flee from, and it's not something that you'll have to seek. It will be given to you, and it will be good for you to bear the cross, to bear the yoke in your youth.
0: Well, we're going to step away for a quick break. We'll be right back with more... CFW Walters, Pastoral Theology. You're listening to Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history www.wordfitlyspoken.org And we are back. You're listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Coons talking about CFW Walters Pastoral Theology. Let's dive right into it here. The first big topic The call, the doctrine of the call, Walter and Missouri's understanding of the divine call. So, before we begin, what is a call? What do we mean by that when we when we use that word?
2: It's going to be a lot different from what we discussed in our first couple episodes on the Lutheran pastor, where we spent a great deal of time talking about the inner call
0: on Gerberding's Lutheran pastor.
2: That's right. Gerberding goes into great detail about the personal characteristics necessary for a minister of the gospel. We also discussed this in the last episode, Paul the pastor, talking about the qualifications listed in the pastoral epistles for a minister, the vast majority of which are personal. Walther doesn't really talk about the inner call. It's not a term that's absent from the Lutheran theological tradition, but Walther doesn't himself discuss it really at all. What he's talking about when he talks about the call is the public call or the outward call. So the ratifying document or action by a calling congregation to a qualified minister of the gospel.
1: And maybe it's worth pointing out there, Walter not really talking about the inner call, and that's true. He does talk about some sort of the the negative things that a pastor shouldn't do. Like in the next chapter, he's going to talk about how a pastor shouldn't engage in a certain kinds of activities so as to waste his time. He should be focused on the task that he has been set to do. And in that case, and in chapter three, it's the task of preaching. The difference between Walther then and between Gerberding, like you said, Gerberding is much more focused on the outward characteristics, the, the positive features of it. But w- why would Walther be so focused on the outward call? What is, why is that such a primary concern for him?
2: It's a massive problem in his own life. There was doubt about leaving Germany and leaving a call, which he, along with many other ministers in the Stefanite party did. And then once they came to America and once the system collapsed with the disgrace of Stefan himself, there was a question about whether or not the people who had emigrated were even church, let alone whether or not the ministers had a valid divine call, whether or not they truly were ministers. And similar to his own personal convalescence and the spiritual crisis that that induced in his youth, in his early manhood, which he's in as a young minister in Missouri, Walther flees to Luther once again, and digging out of Luther's writings, and then finding confessional support in the small called articles, which Luther authored, obviously. Walther comes up with a doctrine of the ministry, which is expressed in the book now published in English as Church and Office, but published in kind of 19th century loquacious form as the voice of our church in the matter of church and office. And in that book, you'll find copious quotes from Luther, but Walther's articulation of the relationship between congregation and minister. And so it's really kind of the most salient theological problem that Walther encounters in his life, which is why he goes on at such great length about it in his pastoral theology.
0: It is interesting how it develops, and Missouri ends up with um, a rather unique polity among Lutheran churches or among Lutheran uh, synods, Lutheran groups, what does it look like then? What what does Walther formulate then?
2: Walther formulates an understanding of church as meaning, specifically in Holy Scripture, a local congregation and only a local congregation, which is different from the articulation that the group eventually in fellowship with the Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Synod, the joint Synod of Wisconsin, Michigan, and other states as it'll be from 1917 onward. They have a broader understanding of what church is. It's also very different from what you might think of as the Eastern or the colonial Lutherans of whom Gerberding would be typical, where the question of the local congregation as the only example of what church is never really arises as a theological question. Missouri has what other synods will identify as a congregationalist polity, meaning the local congregation has all power, potentially. Walther will actually refute that and say, no, Missouri has a synodical polity, but what that is, is a little hard to discern. And one thing that I think it's important to say, to kind of step back and analyze a little bit, is that a lot of these things are dependent on the personalities in the formative years of the Missouri Synod, and also the culture, the German culture of respect for the pastor, which is very much dependent on the culture from which all of these immigrants come, not really on America and not really on the express constitutional or expressly written out in books or newspapers, things that Missouri has put on paper. Right, So the fact that pastors exercise a great deal of power in early Missouri Synod congregations, I believe, really has a lot more to do with their traditional role within German culture as respected, highly educated figures than it does with the way that Walther sets things up, where the congregation has a great deal of power, not only over its own assets— in a way that it wouldn't necessarily within a state church, but also has a lot of power over the pastor. And Walther is careful to say that the pastor is not a hireling, but when the local congregation is the only version of church that there is, according to Scripture, according to Walther, and the pastor is really generally the only employee of this only form of church, it's a little hard not to be a hireling within American culture if you are basically hired by a local small
0: business. Sure. So then, in this understanding of the church, what then does the calling process look like?
2: The calling process has to be, according to Walther, both valid and legitimate. Those are words that he's going to use in Latin in the original German text of this work. And valid means that the call is issued by the right agency, meaning for Walther, only a local congregation not a synod, not an agency, nothing else, just a local congregation. It's valid if it comes from the local congregation, and it has to be legitimate, meaning it has to be accepted in the correct way by somebody who's actually qualified to be a minister. He'll go into those qualifications a little bit later when he talks about examination and ordination, but basically someone who is orthodox is Walther's definition of Qualified. Legitimate,
0: yeah, and these words, validity and legitimacy, again are tied with the Stephanite controversy in the conflict the uh, that the immigrants feel once Stefan has his fall from grace.
2: Right, because the, the question enters in on both validity and legitimacy. Are they really church? Ergo, can they issue a call to anybody? Can they have the right. sacraments and preaching at all? And is any of this legitimate? Did they not make this up for themselves? Did they not make up the situation? Did they not sneak into these offices and is not everything potentially subject to the whims of the pastor, which is the great concern after Stefan. We were duped by a charismatic pastor. We never want that to happen again, which is partly why Walther locates so much power in the local congregation, because if they have the power, then the pastor will, by necessity, not have the power.
0: Right. And you get into these uh, interesting situations here. Like if a call is not validly issued, like someone sneaks into the office or, or gets a call that's uh, term limited or time limited, you know, what they should do in those situations. It's an interesting kind of bit of canon law here, you know, that that develops, you know, what should a man do if things aren't done decently and in order? Well,
1: isn't, isn't that a function of some of the times that he was in as well? Because at least as far as i understand although you guys are more than welcome to correct me on this within the american scene especially in other denominations the great need for pastors especially on in the frontier and you know in the less established parts of america at the time meant that some denominations were basically coming up with ways to get pastors out as quickly as possible to to meet that need and you also have men less scrupulous men Coming to these congregations in an age where communication is not always the greatest and basically presenting themselves as something that they're not. So, again, I mean, wouldn't you say that Walter is reacting against some of these practices that were happening? And and,
0: and they are very common um, at this time, and especially on the frontier. Let's face it, the places where these immigrants were going was still at that time very much the frontier. They kind of fell prey to these sorts of things. I mean, you have entire splits in major denominations in America concerning the training of ministers. All types of heterodox groups really rise up sort of in reaction to that and insistence upon an educated pastorate. So if you're dealing with Walther's
1: concern or the early Missourian concern about legitimacy, not only is it stemming from we have a clear break from the motherland back in Germany, Uh, And, you know, does that mean that we are off on our own? Should we go back? But we're also dealing with all these problems that are going on in America. And, you know, how are we supposed to deal with them? So I think Walther is trying to grapple with real issues. They're not I don't want to say they're all just of his own making. You know, he is trying to deal with the unique problems of Missouri, but also the unique problems that the American scene presents.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it is interesting how mindful he is of something like this. You know, if a call is valid but not legitimate, so if a, and essentially it's it's if a man seeks a call out of self interest or is somehow self seeking, what should he do in that case if he's already accepted the call and that sort of thing? And even then. Then it's kind of turned on its head and the pastor is called not to abandon the call, right? Mm-hmm. But how does he put it? I think it's accept it and then leave it, since it is not a divine call. But he shouldn't still begrudge his duty
1: while there. Or the issue of time bound calls, of temporary calls, you know, he says, you know, that is by definition being a hireling. Right. And I think he's right in that. Because if you're saying, Oh, we're just gonna try you out until, you know, a certain time or a certain date which was the practice, again, of some congregations.
0: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a very good point. You know, when we talk about pastoral candidates, in our context, we tend to mean men who are eligible for a call. When other denominations talk about candidating, in the case of, you know, say a Presbyterian synod or something else, that means something different, and it very much does look like an audition, for lack of a better word candidating in a Campbellite church or a Baptist church means, yeah, you're going to go and you're going to preach for us and you're going to do a few things for us. We're going to kind of get the cut of your jib here, you know, and judge you and then see if you're really the best fit for us. Um, to this day, in theory, that is not the practice of the Missouri Senate.
1: You do see some of that in Lutheran history. I mean, you have the the practice of, of trial sermons, like even in the day of like Gerhard. So this would be like the, the 17th centuries, uh, 18th century, somewhere in there. And so, yeah, I mean, you do have that kind of practice even within Lutheranism, but Walther, because of the unique problems of the American scene and what you know right. was all involved with that is is reacting against it, maybe in a slightly new way as well.
0: Right. And that's the thing. I mean, but we've inherited that to this day in, in the way that we understand um, as a synod, the office of the holy ministry. And really, the candidating thing that exists um, in other denominations today, it really looks a whole lot like you're in a job interview. And if we want to believe that the pastoral office is more than just employment, perhaps it is right to treat it a little bit differently than the corporate hiring process. And uh, you know, that wasn't really happening, though, in the 19th century. But it was similar because what it was, was people would candidate or they would call and then people get these big followings based upon their charisma or, or their personalities. I mean, we're talking about crowds in the thousands coming to see these guys and let a lot of people astray. And that is something to be to be mindful of. You know, you can fall into two ditches, the ditch of celebrity and cult status and personality, or you can fall into the ditch of corporatism within the church and reduce the pastor to merely just another employee. He's no different than the janitor. You know, we can hire him, we can fire him, we can do whatever we want, because he's an at-will employee. And the IRS says so, or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> so there's there's a lot of tension there. And I do
1: think Walther cares about this so much. And he cares about the fact that he wants to send qualified men for all of these various reasons. I mean, um, I was just thinking of how the early Missourian practice of examining, for example, would probably make most of us very nervous, you know, to, to be examined before. I mean, what was it before the, the faculty and anyone could come and it was a public event and, you know, you'd be grilled for quite a while. I think hours is how they. Adam, do you remember how the, uh, the original <laughs> Constitution reads for this? I know it's in there.
2: Yeah, they had examinations similar to what academics still do for doctoral examinations. What, what is different in the church is that that process would often have multiple stages. If the candidate was particularly unfit, for instance, at what was the Synod's practical seminary, the examination might just be in German, but it would also include a sermon, at St. Louis, at the theoretical seminary, as it was called. The examination would be in Latin and would include maybe a German sermon. Sometimes these things were one stage. Sometimes Walther himself would have gone through a two-stage process in Germany. So they were really extensive, and the amount of rigor accorded was pretty massive. So I think that that's, that's something to state about the early Missouri Synod and about the things that Walther sets up as requirements for being a minister in the Missouri Synod is that the Missouri Synod upholds in large measure the same amount of education required for ministers that people like Walther received within a much more established German educational system. And most even Lutheran synods, let alone non-Lutheran synods, don't do anything a whole lot like that in America. Education standards for ministers are usually quite a bit lower in America in the 19th century, just by virtue of exigencies and poverty and lack of
1: organization. So at any rate, then, yeah, I mean, that's that's a a great way of putting it. Uh, It would just go to show then the great care, like you say, that Walther is showing forth in this question. You know, we don't want to think that he just came up with this in a in a fever dream or something like that. I mean, he is he is wrestling with this in a very real way and he is deeply concerned about how to answer this question.
2: Yeah, and I think that you see in that Recreation to large extent of German academia, something bigger about Walther's method, which, which extends also to his pastoral theology, which has been called often derisively repristination, but maybe you could call it transplantation. So he believes that what is better was in the past, and therefore the recreation of those things will be good for the church into the future, if only they can be transplanted successfully and preserved. And this extends to lots and lots and lots of things. I think something that we said about when we were talking about, well, he doesn't say a whole lot about the inner call, but he does sometimes make very small practical observations about duties of the minister. I think part of the reason for that is that the things that Walther is reading and the system in which Walther grows up and the system that he's actually seeking to transplant to America, where congregations ideally all have schools, just like in Germany, the village school, which was a state school, was also the church's school. They try to transplant a mode of living and a mode of educating ministers and a way of being, which has been around for a very long time. And as Germany is industrializing in the 19th century, is actually, to some extent, slipping away. But where Walther is from and what he tries to recreate in the early Missouri Synod is a kind of idyl, uh, I-D-Y-L-L, of rural German Lutheran life, which you know we can all think of congregations that are either still doing something like that, or certainly were set up to do something like that. And that that is Walther's method in so many ways, is to say the past was good. Let's either preserve it or let's get back to it.
0: All right. Very good. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelman Heidi, and Adam Kuntz here talking about Walther's pastoral theology. We just finished up a discussion about the call, but implied in that discussion is an agreement between the calling congregation and the called minister. There are some non-negotiables for Walther that are very interesting and may do well to inform us about church planning today or about the relationship between a congregation and their pastor today. So jump right into that, guys. Uh, let's talk about that. The relationship or the agreement, rather, the understoods between the congregation and the called pastor.
2: Walther makes a list of seven things. It's not really clear if he means that this is like in a call document along with financial agreements. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's definitely necessary. He says that if, this, if these things are not present, a minister should not accept a call. So the first one of these stipulations of Walther on the part of the calling congregation is that the congregation want to be Orthodox Lutherans. They don't want to be something else. They don't want to be Baptists or non-denominational. They don't want to be Roman Catholics. They want to be Orthodox Lutherans. Now, the modifier there, Orthodox, means something specific. It doesn't mean lutheran by virtue of birth, or Lutheran in some very loose sense, it means that you not only want the name Lutheran, but you want to believe and practice those things that are Lutheran thoroughly and conscientiously. So Walther makes a point which is made over and over again, especially as the Missouri Synod evaluates other Lutheran church bodies in America which is orthodoxy does not consist in a formal affirmation that you believe the right things or that you would like to do the right things. Orthodoxy consists in actually proclaiming and actually doing what is right. And that, that's a pretty big stipulation. And that is, for some congregations, I think going to be a lot to ask because it might be something they've never thought of before.
0: Yeah, what does it mean to be Lutheran? Why do we have that name on the sign, right? And what does that look like? So we'll get into that then. The first and foremost is being bound to the Holy Scriptures
2: which seems obvious, (laughs) but it's not always. And I would say increasingly, those are the sorts of things that we're having to discuss. It's something notable, I I think about this often, that in the 19th century, American Lutherans largely uh, disagreed about what the nature of adherence to the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, was. In the 20th century, and very much In the 21st century, Lutherans increasingly disagree about what the Bible is. So, whereas you could have relied on both Walther and more or less his theological polar opposite, Samuel Schmucker, of the General Synod, to agree that the Bible was God's Word, you didn't even necessarily need the modifiers inerrant or infallible because those were simply understood. By the 20th century, and certainly now, You have really no agreement on that between the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and let's say the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA. The most basic disagreements concern what the Bible is. So if a congregation were to call a minister, the minister would want to know, yeah, the Bible is actually the authority in this congregation. When I refer to the Bible, it's actually operative. It means something. It can change things. People will pay attention because they are paying attention to it as God's word.
0: All right. Underneath that, accepting the symbolical books of the church, but for Walter, that's namely, um, just in this particular context, the small catechism and the unaltered Augsburg Confession.
2: I was personally surprised to find that he did not say the The entire entire book. Yeah, yeah, the entire book of Concord, because Missouri is pretty famous for being very, very tightly bound to the entirety of the Book of Concord as the standard for both our congregations in their constitutions and for our ministers in their ordination vows. And
0: perhaps, though, this is just a case of what he expects the laity to be familiar with more than anything. The church accepting the Book of Concord, yes, or the congregation, but at the same time, them really being familiar and knowing the content of the catechism and the UAC. Yeah, his
1: own words on this point are that because you can't expect all members to be familiar with each of the symbols, it's sufficient to have them be bound to the small catechism and the unaltered Oxford Confession. So it's, it is a question of familiarity and what you can expect the laity to have. I think you would be right, though, to say that he would expect the minister, for example, to uphold the entire Book of Concord.
0: Oh, certainly, yeah.
2: And it is notable that in the Missouri Synod's one and only German-language hymnal, the small catechism and the Augsburg Confession are printed in their entirety. And since hymnals are home objects primarily in the early Missouri Synod and not church pew objects, people are carrying them back and forth, they're using them at home, there is therefore the expectation that the laity will be as familiar with that as they are with the hymns and with the service, and interestingly also Josephus's account of the destruction of Jerusalem. All those things are <laughs> bound into the hymnal for the, the use of the laity. The Josephus thing might seem random, but I know that it was read liturgically on whatever Sunday after Trinity is closest to August 10th to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's just a little note. But although it's interesting, I mean, the, the hymnal is a little measurement in the early Missouri Synod of what the laity are supposed to know.
0: Right. So the next is going to be then being Lutheran in liturgical practice where Lutheran practices are controversial. In short, being Lutheran when those around you insist that you not be or insist that your practices are not biblical or somehow are unchristian.
2: Yeah, so this is pretty interesting because Walther does not mean that every congregation should have the same amount or extent of ceremony, and that if they do not have an amount of ceremony that accords with the candidate's own predilections, that he therefore should not accept it. Because the question of adiaphora or indifferent things is so controverted, both in Lutheranism in his time and in our day. I do have a quote that I'd like to read, a list that he's got. This is on pages 64 and 65 of the uh, CPH edition of the Pastoral Theology. And he says in a footnote, "...our old Orthodox theologians reckon the following, among others, to the indifferent matters customary in our Evangelical Lutheran Church." Images, festivals and feast days, music with harmony and organ music in the church, chanting at the altar, with respect to baptism, pouring water three times, baptism by laity, the sign of the cross, baptismal gowns, renunciation of the devil, exorcisms. Questioning sponsors about their faith. There's a lot of things in here, but they include, among indifferent things, kneeling for communion, wearing pastoral vestments, crucifixes, the lectionary, even the numbering of the commandments. And the reason to read those things out is simply to say that Walther says if a congregation is not doing some of those things, that is not an impediment to an Orthodox Lutheran minister being called to that congregation. The issue is, is the congregation, when pressed, when shown that people are saying, you should not do these things, are they willing to uphold these traditional Lutheran practices, understanding that they can be godly? Or will they capitulate when pressed? Will they show themselves to be infirm in their adherence to the Lutheran Church when pressed, when pressured. So that's the issue for Walther, is not so much does a congregation have everything that a minister could ever want in the way of ceremony but rather is the congregation willing when pressed to withdraw from some traditional Lutheran ceremony, which is good and and which in some manner teaches or expresses the faith? Will the congregation uphold that ceremony as godly and Lutheran? Or will they say, oh, we're kind of uneasy about being too Lutheran, so we're going to stop doing that?
0: Right. Next one's going to be Pure church and school books.
2: That means that the congregation is not imbibing what Walther very explicitly calls poison. Mm -hmm. So if they are using hymnals... Not to put too fine a point on it. Not to put too fine a point on it. If they are using hymnals or they they are instructing the young with things that include false doctrine. He is willing to say you don't have to get rid of them right away, like that day, but uh, they need to be on their way out. They need to be gone as soon as possible.
1: I think, wasn't the wording that a minister could only use them, but under explicit protest, and then it still has to be on its way out kind of thing?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So you you have to be clear. This is awful. It's going away soon.
0: Soon as I can find a burn barrel, you know. (laughs) and a book of matches we're going to we're going to get rid of this right
2: which is which is pretty easy in a in a world basically heated by wood stoves
0: or coal stoves <laughs> right the potbell <laughs> is just just waiting for it right and the school kids are warmed right in two ways okay we're going to come back to each of these in a minute um announcement for the supper
2: that means that Walther reserves the right the pastor must reserve the right to practice Not only what we currently do as closed communion, but even more than that, the idea that before any communion, the person must tell the pastor that he wants communion and why he wants communion and must confess his sins.
0: Right. Regular examination before the sacrament. Correct. Right. And then uh, lastly here, free course for God's word.
2: This is basically the congregation saying we will be teachable. We will listen. God's word will not be silenced, whether it's talking about our marriages or our finances or whatever area it may be, however touchy it may be. God's word will have the authority and the say, which is due to it as his.
0: And in every aspect we will submit to it and do as it says That's and correct. believe what it says. exactly. Yeah. So with all that being said then, looking at this and understanding that these seven points were the agreement between a calling congregation and a called minister. Do these speak in any way to the identity of the congregation today, the relationship of the congregation to the pastor today? Does it in any way inform the way in which we plant new congregations or establish Lutheran identity in congregations where perhaps it's been forgotten or even neglected? I think it's also worth pointing out
1: first, Walther is also dealing in a time in which it wasn't necessarily going to be the case that a congregation would become a part of the of the Missouri Synod because he actually says like didn't doesn't he say towards the end of the section about pastors shouldn't press them about joining a synod or something like that yeah
2: that's correct his only stipulation is that they have to let him be Missouri Synod if he wants to
0: yeah and that and that's a situation we don't see a lot of today where you have a Missouri Synod pastor who is overseeing a flock that doesn't belong to the synod Right. We're so far, you know, beyond those days that it's really kind of a foreign concept for us.
1: So that being said, informing our practice today, I certainly think that it can and it should. I think we almost take some of these things more for granted, and we almost think that they're they're just more automatic than maybe they really are.
0: Yeah, yeah. You just think, you know, if someone like just discovers Lutheranism, that doesn't mean that they understand really what Lutheranism means or that they understand even or even know the names of the foundational documents. You know, you can't assume a lot of stuff and you can't assume even a lifelong Missouri Synod member is familiar with a lot of these points that we talk about. There will be catechetical instruction and confirmation, first communion instruction to be sure, but we're really in a day and age where we can't take anything for granted
1: Yeah, and so with that then and the agreement that Walther is talking about between the congregation and the pastor, I think it should inform the way that we approach our relationship with our congregation today. Not in a, this is my seven points that I'm going to (laughs) come in and we're going to fix everything right now. And
0: then you go like Fahrenheit 451 on the church library because, (laughs) you know. I'm a fireman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, right
1: but that we should at least in some sense strive for an orthodoxy and to teach people what it means to be Lutheran because we're not just dealing in some sort of abstract. You know, we are dealing in, you know, what does the Bible say? What does What is it that we believe and why is that important? And that's something that all Christians should, should strive
0: for. And the script, yeah, exactly. The scripture as the doctrines as confessed in the unaltered un- Augsburg Confession and as taught in the small catechism, are meant for the church. It's not merely the domain of the pastor. It's not merely an academic exercise. These are things that are meant to edify and unify the church, and they are tremendous tools. I mean, of course, keeping the Scripture uh, primary above everything else. But even when you look at at the Scriptures, though, I mean, can we presuppose any knowledge of them with an average person on the street, with the people that we meet that we would seek to have join our churches, for example? you know we we really start from scratch so if anything these 7 points are goals to strive to they're not things to necessarily expect in many contexts
2: i think that they are circling around questions that are perennial touch points for a pastor like how much freedom does god's word have in my congregation right now how much does my does my congregation actually know about certain doctrines which are essential for its life? What what kind of worship do we have? What are the nature of the ceremonies in our congregation? Are they simply what we do because we're comfortable with them, or, or do people understand what they're confessing? What does it mean to be a Lutheran? What do I actually know about my people, which is really the... The pastoral point behind announcement for the supper, what has become basically like a check of whether or not your Lcms, which is really all that most pastors can do anymore surrounding communion, was originally a more specifically pastoral and an individualized tool for understanding, knowing, and guiding the souls of of the congregation
0: well yeah it was I mean it was literally the pastor doing his due diligence, what today is looked upon as invasive or as judgmental or is bigoted somehow, or as a soul killing or church killing was really just the pastor doing his due diligence, the pastor fulfilling his vocation. Things that, it's interesting, you know, how much, how important these points remain and yet how far, in some cases, we've moved from them. So then, you know, is is the next natural question, how important is a Lutheran identity for a congregation, an established congregation? How important is it for an establishing congregation, when it's being planted, and uh, how do we articulate that in our context then?
2: I think it's absolutely essential because if a congregation does not know why it is there, when there are other congregations, there are Methodists and there is everything else in the world around them, if they don't know why they are there, then they will eventually not be there at all. A congregation without a firm identity is a congregation that doesn't know why it exists, and it will therefore go out of existence. It will basically fulfill its own destiny in that way.
0: Yeah, or cease to be something else entirely, or or end up being something else entirely. Right. So why bother then contending? If, if it's just for the sake of outward unity, I would argue it's not worth contending for. But there's something much more at stake here. We're seeking this unity in Lutheran identity, for the sake of souls, for the sake of a right understanding of Scripture that guards people from the devil. Otherwise, they're sort of left at the mercy of false teachings, erroneous interpretations of the Bible, every wind of doctrine, to be more biblical. It it is very important that we maintain this because our confession is a good confession and it is worth contending for. There's no sense in, in being right just for the sake of being right or towing a party line. We want to contend for the truth of the scriptures because it is the truth of the scriptures. And that's something that the Lutheran church possesses. At least I hope we can agree on that point.
1: Church planting is not just a matter of, oh, let's just tell them about Jesus and do whatever goes and we'll just kind of get it going. You no, know, it is about, like you say, cultivating an identity so that they recognize that this is the truth. I mean, that's ultimately, ultimately the goal.
0: Absolutely. Guys, any final words as we're coming up on time here?
1: I think
2: as we get deeper into Walther's pastoral theology, it is going to be really important to remember that he is not only looking toward the past for its own sake, but looking toward the past for the sake of the future, and that his project of bringing Orthodox Lutheran theology into the United States is not always a perfect fit, but it's always a fascinating enterprise And we'll see that both in the sources that he uses and also in the recommendations that he makes, even recommending something like private confession in a political context where that's associated with, you know, Roman Catholic conspiracy. I think that, I think that Walther is, his existence is fascinating within the American religious landscape because he is in so many ways so unique.
0: Very good. Very well said. Well, that's it, guys. Hope you liked the discussion. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. If you like what you heard, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or check us out on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelman Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless.